You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Good afternoon, everybody. Just after 12 o'clock, I hope you're having a good day. It's uh, first day of fall out there. The leaves have started to turn in my part of the country. And if they haven't in your part of the country, I'm thrilled for you, but it's probably coming. Um, and you know what? It was really nice out there this morning. I, I'm, I'm one of these obnoxious people who likes fall. Um, I just like the crisp air, the lack of humidity. Uh, I don't like November and I love winter, but, and I love summer, but I don't like November and I don't like, like sort of the shoulder seasons, like March, April, where it's kind of messy, you're sick of it. And you still can't do stuff outside because, you know, there's too much salt and crap on the roads and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, I hope you're having a good day so far. A big day here in the nation's capital um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, we are going to have Scott Reed on, of course, CTV News political commentator, former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. I am going to say that I'm on the record right now. This is their first face-to-face question period with Pierre Polyev as leader of the Conservative Party, clear leader of the Conservative Party, absolutely no doubt whatsoever, the party is Pierre's, okay? Yeah, of course they faced off in question period before, but I am going to say right now, I don't think, I think this will be the nastiest period in Canadian politics that we've ever seen, ever. I... Uh, I'm open to uh, criticism that I'm ignoring, you know, conscription issues during the wars, Quebec's involvement or not, um, uh, the October crisis. There are big, big things that happened. I'm talking about the raw sport of politics, the tone of our politics, and where the public is at with our politics. I think, and it, it appears that Trudeau is staying, I think Trudeau Polyev will be the ugliest campaign we've ever seen. I think we've seen the tip of the iceberg with stones being thrown at Trudeau. Um, and I think that the, I, I don't know how divided the larger public is. I, I certainly don't have a large read on that. I'm not a pollster. I'm not someone who studies this closely. I think the partisan wings of our various parties are as far apart as they've ever been. I mean, I'm basically saying the sky is blue here. It's obvious. There were times not that long ago where they got together and worked together, um, whether it was post 9-11, whether it was even in Harper's time post uh, uh, financial crisis, um, where hammer and tong politics and go at them at all times, both sides, no matter what, was not the fashion of the day all the time. And even back then, people were lamenting the decline of our politics. I think it is hammer and tong 24-7, and I think it is a win at all costs. I'm going to talk to Scott just generally about what Polyev is trying to do. And I want your take on this as well. Seven, ten, ten. Here's here's my read. The and you can blast me if you think I'm wrong, or and we'll get Scott's take on it as well. If you look at Trudeau's support, it's concentrated in the cities. As I've said before on this program, uh, take a trip down Yonge Street in Toronto, 
and you'll hit five cabinet ministers, literally five, uh, all the way down Young Street. This is a government of cities, right? If you look at the concentration of their power, it is in big cities, the big cities in Canada, Vancouver. Um, and before you jump on me, I know Calgary and Edmonton are big cities, the big cities that generally tend to vote liberal, not the ones that tend to vote conservative, which is prairie cities. There are big cities in the prairies as well. But the, when I'm talking about Trudeau's support and the liberal support, we are talking about Vancouver. We're talking about Toronto. We're talking about bits and pieces of Ottawa and the core of Ottawa. And we're talking about parts of Montreal. So, and of course, when, when you talk about Toronto, it's 905 as well. It's spread out over that mega city. Um, years ago, John Baird told me that, uh, on the eve of the defeat of the Harper government, that they were in trouble in the West GTA. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the Brampton Mississaugas are very, very diverse, um, very dynamic places. And they generally tend to go in a block. They all went Harper. And in 2015, they all, all the seats at once flipped to Trudeau. So is Polyev going to be able to do that? Is he going to be able to flip all of those seats in West Toronto? And the reason I'm asking this, I'm not criticizing the conservatives chances or him as a leader or whatever, but it just seems to me more people from more conservative parts of the country that tend to not be cities like rural places, the prairies, the North, Northern Ontario, places like that, more of that will not allow him to win government, will not get him in. They have to punch through in the cities. And given his messaging on pocketbook, um, is that a possibility? I'll remind you, uh, people listening in Ontario, that when someone was very sick of a left-leaning government in the province of Ontario, way back in 1995, they swept Mike Harris into power. Now, these are different times. Is Trudeau as uh, fatiguing to the larger public as Bob Ray was in Ontario? I don't know. I don't know. But if he's going to win, that's what he's got to do. So we're going to talk to Scott about that. And the reason I'm talking about, of course, is the first day that they're going head-to-head First day, head to head in the House of Commons and question period. And I'm guessing the economy and inflation is going to come up. Boy, those inflation numbers are just something else. You talk to, uh, we're locally here in Ottawa, we're doing stories on uh, how to save money on groceries, what you need to do, people couponing, and the number of people responding on our social media channels about the fact that they have changed their diet and the fact that they cannot. Um, they have to radically change their behavior now, given the price increases. Like when you talk about 15% year over year on vegetables, that's enough to push people. You know what? I'm not buying vegetables now. I can't, I'm going to canned goods. We had one story where one of our journalists, um, talked to a guy in the grocery store and he makes, uh, every year he makes in the fall, he makes chili. I've been known to do that as well. My buffalo chicken chili is actually, uh, has won a few awards. Well, one here in the station. Anyway, 
The guy says, this, this kind of stuck with me. Normally I get all the ingredients, including the ground beef. It's about 10 bucks. This year it's 20. <laughs> like, like this is like five items, a couple of cans, the ground beef, clearly more expensive. Um, you know, one green pepper, more expensive, double in cost. It's now 20 bucks to make a pot of chili, right? And look, for those of you out there, oh, tell me something I don't know. And what are you just waking up to this? The reason I, I mentioned this particular case is chili's always cheap. You get it, you get it for leftovers. You take it for lunch. You know, you're talking about ingredients in chili that you can reuse and feed a family or whatever, or watch a football game with. Now it's 20 bucks or more, depending on your ingredients. Like that's a, that's a, that's a massive change. So, um, I'm sure that's going to come up in the house of Commons. The other thing too, 50 years ago today, the summit series, Henderson scores for Canada. We are going to speak with one of the members of that team. Uh, they are commemorating in Ottawa today on parliament Hill. They're going to be in the house of Commons. Rod Sealing's going to be here. They're getting a stamp. And I was two years old and I feel like I know everything about that series. I mean, for me personally, 1987, the Canada cup and of course the golden goal etched in my memory and etched in my Canadian psyche. But the first one was the 72 series and everything about that. We're going to talk about that and other things. When the Evan Solomon show returns, I'm Graham Richardson sitting in. We're back in a moment. It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab for fell. Here's another shot right by the shore. Who still gets chills? He's two years old. I know Foster Hewitt and I know that moment, but uh, boy, what a moment 50 years ago. Someone else who knows a lot more about that moment was there, was on the team. Rod Sealing joins us now. Great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Happy to be here, Graham. Thanks so much for having me. 50 years, 50 years ago. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Do you still, does it still affect you when you hear that call? And that I call? never get tired of hearing No, this. no. It's <laughs> like for my generation too, I'm 52, but the... But the golden goal, like I've watched, rewatched all that video uh, and all the celebrations and uh, bring us, bring us back there. Um, what, what was it like, uh, first of all, the pressure on Team Canada and, and, and going to Moscow? I mean, it must have been extraordinary. Well, we, we were all aware the pressures. I mean, we're in the middle of the Cold War. Most Canadians today don't understand that. They're getting a bit now with Ukraine. But this was big time. We knew that uh, the Soviets were going to use this game to try and show that uh, communism was much better than democracy. So we had that on us. Then, of course, the, the way the arrangements were made, uh, you bring together a bunch of all-stars who have no ice in the summertime, no way of knowing. We get to an abbreviated training camp. Back in those days, we played our way into games shape through training camp. We had 20 exhibition games. So, right. And so it's not like today where you, you have to come 
ship shape ready like they don't you weren't working around working out around the clock right mm-hmm. or around the or, or, during the summer well if you recall from today yeah. NHL training camps open today they're playing Saturday that never happened even if we wanted to there was no ice around back in those days anyway right so we were you take a bunch of all-stars who don't know each other in fact they're the enemy back those days um the other guys in the, that other colored sweater, that was the enemy. You didn't associate with them. They weren't friends. You battled with them sometimes 14 times a, a year in games. Yeah. So we had to come together as a team. We weren't in game shape. We opened up in Montreal, not ready to play, not in game shape. And it really wasn't until we went to Sweden that we got in game condition because we had a mini training camp over there, played two exhibition games against the Swedish national team, and then go to Moscow. Yeah. And, of course, they do everything they can to upset us. They play mind games. They have the, the, an army battalion waiting for us. They ship us off to the back. They Your phones through. were ringing, you were saying? The, the phones Harassment. Were ringing, uh, everything. They stole our food. The, the officials had made arrangements to bring food in from, uh, from Sweden. Most of that disappeared. The food they served us. Even for salad, the oil was rancid. I mean, you couldn't, uh, just everything Dirty they could. tricks. Dirty tricks. The way they play. Right. <laughs> All's and, fair in love and war. Yeah. And this, was, this was a war. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, obviously back then, those Canadian players were not shy about, about swiping back on the ice. But you, 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 in many ways, I mean, you're at their mercy when you're behind the Iron Curtain, right? Oh, you are. You've got someone watching you all the time. And so you can't go anywhere without an escort. And, and of course, I've, I've said, and to this day, I still believe it's true, every Canadian should be made to go to Russia once. Yeah. They'd come home finding what a great country they have, and we would have a better country. Yeah. It, it, and I often find that people who've traveled abroad, they appreciate Canada more, particularly into countries where... Um, where there's not as much freedom, basically. We, we are so lucky for the yeah. standard of living, for our freedoms, for yeah. the things that we have to be thankful for. Um, when he scored, um, what did you know right away how big that was for everyone, for the country? We didn't know what was going on back in Canada. I mean... Because you had been booed. We'd been booed. We were booed off the ice in Vancouver. Phil made that great speech, spoke from the heart, any one of us on the ice or those not dressed would have said the same thing. We went home for a day or two, got our things together, and went to Sweden. So we didn't know what was going back in Canada. We never knew what was going back. We had a little bit of inkling in the sense that there was a big board outside of our dressing room. You've got to remember, back then, there was no internet or no. things like that. So we were, there were telegrams, and they'd bring a new batch in every day and wishing us luck. And, and so... We knew we had a bit of support, but the thing that was really helpful were the 3,000 Canadians that, uh, that joined us and were there. They cheered their heart out for us, and, and they were great. The, the one interesting aspect of that is that um, you're too young to remember, but back in those days, there was a gentleman uh, who was a regular at the Montreal Forum, and he played the trumpet, and I hated him because he, the charge, he'd get the Montreal fans going. <laughs> he went to Moscow. He came to Moscow. And he was there. Actually, the Soviets threw him in jail the first night. He, he would play the charge. And what they didn't know was he taped it. And so they took him out of the, the arena 
And but the the uh, that charge still kept on going. And what the Canadians did, they would pass it around the arena, and we're on the ice watching. And you, he, the charge would go, and you'd see all these because there's soldiers stationed all around uh, the the rink. They'd run up to where they thought they heard it, and by that time it had been passed around the rink. And five minutes later, to go from the other side, and and he stayed in jail till the Canadians went home. Is that right? And yeah. why? Because he said some paperwork violation, or he was at your whatever. He looked they, the wrong way. <laughs> they found they found a reason. Um, quickly, uh, quickly on this on the on the team gelling on the Canadian side. The other thing that younger people will not know is that this Soviet team played together, and they were. They were in really good shape, right? Like they, oh, they were. They were. They were in midseason form, and they'd played together for umpteen years. Yeah, I played against some of them in the Olympics in 1964, so I, I knew all about them, and, and I, I never believed that it was going to be a pushover because I'd played enough games against them. But what happened is that we came together. I mean, we literally went to war for our country, and the, the players in that team are lifelong friends, no yeah. matter where we are. Even, even when we came back from Moscow, when the season started, when we were skating around pregame warm-up, I would tap one of the guys on the, on the shin pads as they were going by. And I said, what the hell are you doing? He said, he's my friend. I went to war. Yeah. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, what's on for today? You're going to Parliament Hill? We're I, going I to hear... Parliament Hill. They're the launching of the stamp. Speaking of, speaking of war, it'll be a nice moment inside the House of Commons where we all get together and celebrate again as opposed to going at each other. I th- like, hopefully they will be nice to one another. I'm sure they will. Yeah. They all love Canada. And then we're having dinner with the Governor General. Lovely. Have a nice day. Um, before I let you go, and thanks so much for coming in, um, where, uh, where were you with Sydney's with the Golden Goal? And, and can you compare the two? Or are they both just excellent in their own? I, I think they stand on their own. It, it's... Sydney's goal, it's a different time. Mm-hmm. Those players play against, played against each other all year long. They were just NHL teams transformed for the most part. <clears throat> this is a Cold War. It's life and death. Uh, the struggles that we had to put through, it's, it, it's, I, it's like somebody saying, who was a better fighter, Muhammad Ali or Rocky Marciano? I don't think you can compare. Yeah. I don't think you should try to. Yeah. But, I, but I do know, and I, I read an article yesterday in, in – our home paper in, in Kitchener-Waterloo, and, and going back to your earlier question, one of the things that I'm most proud of, it brought Canadians together. It yeah. made Canadians feel proud, and that is self-satisfying. And it's one thing I hope that people today take out of all this is that we did this for our country. We didn't get paid. This, this yeah. was because we wanted to represent our country. It was an honor, and we did it for our country. And hopefully as Canadians grow up and, and more learn about this, they will understand there'll be a point in time they need to stand up for Canada. Maybe they'll think about us. Yeah. Wonderful to talk to you. My pleasure. I, I, I'm two years old and I get feels. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was two years old and I didn't, you know, well, I, just, that, I know so much about it. That's the amazing thing. We did a, a, a function 15 years ago and we're at the Hall of Fame. Uh, and... It was an awful, awful day, and they kept us inside, and they finally took us outside because they were unveiling a statue there. And it was amazing to see all these younger Canadians there who weren't born at the time of 1972, but they knew everything about the games in the series, and they knew the players. And it was, it's, it's, it's heartfelt to, to think of that, and hopefully people will remember us in that respect that, we're, Canada, we're all Canadians. Thank you, sir.
My pleasure. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The review will help ensure that the act adapts to the current situation and continues to meet Canadians' needs and expectations. That is the health minister talking about Cannabis Act. And the review being launched after four years, which is in the act, uh, it's hard to believe it's been four years because you miss, I mean, like I always say, the, the pandemic uh, took time away and like it just, it was four years ago. Um, part of that review, of course, is uh, industry's perspective on this. A former politician, uh, health minister in Ontario, and now uh, president of the Cannabis Council of Canada is George Smitherman, and also the pride of Etobicoke and Silverthorne Collegiate. You didn't think I remembered that? Burnhamthorpe. Burnhamthorpe. Oh, <laughs> years ago, I covered George. He's in studio with us. Years ago, I covered him. I knew he was Etobicoke. I got his school wrong. Uh, welcome. Good to see you. Thanks so much. Um, uh, tell me about uh, where we are. Is it, is it where the industry expected us to be after four years? How would you characterize it? Well, you know, even during COVID, the cannabis industry invested about $45 billion of GDP over three or contributed $45 billion in GDP over three years, building out a significant uh, capacity uh, to meet the market demands. It's a big business. It's it's a big business. It contributes, you know, it got a lot done during COVID with tremendous amount of uh, construction, GDP impact and the like. Now four years into it, and that review was supposed to start at three years. So we're kind of like a year late on this review, which creates a lot of urgency to get some changes made. That's kind of where we're at. Um, but, you know, the industry's done quite well, but we're facing some really, really challenging uh, headwinds. And it's a very, very difficult environment for anybody to make profit. And that's... Why uh, is that? Well, because the, the, you know, I'm a former government guy and I had the privilege of spending a fair bit of public resource. The tax was predicted here at 10%, a $1 tax per gram on a $10 per gram cannabis price. Mm -hmm. The tax is a dollar. The price of the cannabis is $3 or $3.50. So what was supposed to be a 10% tax is coming in, depending on the format, 30 35 and 40%. And that's even before uh, markups, like from the Ontario Cannabis Store, the distributor, they tack a markup on. By the time a bag of dry flour is sold, about 60% of the embedded cost went to one government or another. It doesn't leave very much for those retailers or for my members, which are the licensed producers and growers. Was the prediction that the price, the prices would be higher and they're not? And right. why is that? Well, the, the dry cannabis has been significantly commoditized over the last few years. The reduction in the price of the dry flower, weed, mm -hmm. uh, has been very significant. Most of that uh, on the backs of my members and their investors. And the government proportion of taxes has actually increased 
as the price of the commodity has been reduced. So what we're trying to say, as California recently did, they're having real struggles there getting their legal market going, and they just removed quite a bit of tax that was applied to cultivators. Mm. So, you know, these are some of the things we're looking at. We have a very, very high high tax basis. We have some product formats where we're just not allowed to offer things that people want, like a edible with more than 10 milligrams of uh, THC. And the illicit market is very, very dug in. You know, I think some policymakers assume, well, they're just going to go away. They're going to disappear. Everybody's going to be legal on day one. These are uh, people that have been consuming products from suppliers that they know that are on friendly terms for a long time. And those illicit markets have a lot of price advantage over us. So and it's, the other it's, thing, it's tough. my assumption is, and I'm not, I like my beer. I'm, I've, I've occasionally dabbled in the legal product that you, that you represent, but um, uh, my general impression is that um, the the illicit market um, would would go away faster than they anticipated, which is what you're saying. But government has to take a tax bite because their whole justification is it's untaxed in the illicit market. Every of course, everybody expected that associated with cannabis legalization, governments were going to get their you know, we're going to get a piece sure. of piece of it. And I'm the last person to quarrel with that. But the proportionality is out of whack here. You look at Ontario as an example. The Ontario cannabis store is going to make a three hundred million dollar profit just on their role as a distributor of cannabis. The excise taxes and the portion of HST and the employment taxes that they get from all the activity of the sector, that's all on top of it. So, yeah, we want to grow the pie with them. Our argument would be, hey, back it off a little here and there, and together we can go and get the more of the market. Because mm-hmm. right now, you know, the policy uh, is motivated by public health objectives, including the elimination of the illicit market and getting cannabis consumers like me to be able to consume tested and safer products. And so this is really what we're trying to say to the government. Back it off a little and let's go and get a bigger share of the market than we've currently been able to acquire. Would lower taxes then and higher profits legally hurt an illicit market that really the other thing I was going to say is that, I don't know, are police busting them anymore? I don't think they are. You know, the uh, the reality is that in Toronto today, on my street at Bloor in Parliament, several kilometers away from Spadina Avenue, I've got postering for illegal cannabis operations offering 24-7, 50% off sales and postering. Those three things are all examples that we cannot do in the legal market. And everybody has attention for those people that put up their hand and said, yeah, I'll be regulated. And there's very limited attention for the people that are operating seemingly with immunity from the law. They wouldn't allow uh, that if it was booze, right? I don't think like, so. I, they, you they'd know. be busting bars or wherever who were pushing illegal. So, or, yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's a real, okay. that's a real clencher for people because, you know, they're, they're, it's a high cost environment we're in and to see people, uh, flouting the law and not, uh being charged or what have you is a real difficult situation. You've uh, you've heard this before. Listeners here in Ottawa, around the country who are listening to us, they see a lot of retail operations popping up. Why are there so many? I hear that a lot. Well, because there's a, well, I mean, there's a variety of answers here. The first answer is, please remember, we've got millions of consumers. So our consumers are everywhere. And like other retail networks, you should expect that convenient access is one aspect of a good good market. In Ontario in particular, the Ford government created kind of a market forces model for retail 
That's meant, of course, that in some places there's a concentration that people focus on as a problem or what have you, but you can already start to see the winnowing out of the winnowing, winnowing out of that as we as we land in a kind of a, a healthier uh, healthier environment. I would point out also, Graham, is that in in the province of Ontario, we've got millions of people that live in jurisdictions that don't offer any stores. So if you're talking about like places as large as Mississauga and a variety of other GTA municipalities, but I think that the retail. Uh, you know, the the retail attrition is on and it's going to right size to the size of the market. My big objective is to get the rest of those people that are still buying their products in the illicit market into those stores. And, you know, there's not nearly as many cannabis access points as there are beverage alcohol. That's like 10 times more, 15 times more in the province of Ontario. And mm. we do have millions of consumers to attend to. On a political day, right? Uh, Pierre and... Justin Trudeau going at each other for the first time, leader to leader. You ever miss politics? I miss, <laughs> I miss the, I miss the thought, I miss the thought of it, but you know, I did most of my politics without kids. Right. And uh, now I got a 12 and a 14 year old and I got nothing left after I've done, <laughs> done my day, done my day job and tried to attend to that. But politics is a special life. And if you like meeting people and experiencing new things, there's nothing like it, but you know, I got a lot of stories to, uh, I got a lot of stories to live off of. I'm not, uh, not seeking office these days. Great to reconnect, George. Appreciate this. Thank pleasure, you. To, pleasure to see you always. Thanks. All right. That's George Smitherman uh, from the Cannabis Council of Canada on The Review. Uh, we're going to take a quick break on the Evan Solomon Show. We're going to head to, um, we're going to talk about Iran and the protests there with a CNN correspondent in Turkey right after the break when the Evan Solomon Show uh, continues. I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us. Thanks for being here. The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Uh, Thanks for being here. Some shocking scenes in Iran, uh, both by uh, what sparked the protests and the protests themselves. An Iranian woman has died in police custody. Um, She was arrested by the morality police, essentially, for not wearing hijab correctly. And then she ended up dead in prison. Protests have raged across the country in many cities, not just uh, not just in Tehran. So widespread outpouring of anger um, and the protests are uh, deadly. Uh, the um, the father of the woman who died in prison, Amjad Amini, whose daughter Massa died in prison, uh, telling the CBC, they're, or the, sorry, the BBC, they're lying. They're telling lies. Everything is a lie. No matter how much I begged, they wouldn't let me see my daughter. Uh, joining us now is Jomana Kar- Karadche Scott, a CNN correspondent in Turkey. Uh, Jomana, how significant is it to see this many people and women, by the way, in the streets of Iran protesting? Graham, these are absolutely incredible images that we've been seeing coming out of Iran over the past few days. Unprecedented, this sort of protest, the uh, scope, the scale of these protests, the fact that you're seeing so many women on the streets leading the protests, 
you've got women taking off their headscarf, something that would end them up in jail or um, they could be flogged uh, for doing that. They're taking off their headscarves in public, burning their headscarves that, you know, of course, is compulsory in the country that they have been forced to uh, wear for decades. And you were seeing young men also joining in the protests, as you mentioned, that are so widespread uh, from the Kurdish Northwest to the capital, Tehran, to even more uh, conservative cities like Mashhad and Qom. These Mm. sort of protests are just unprecedented. And you've got this young generation that has never had these freedoms before coming out and, you know, chanting uh, death to the dictator in reference to the supreme leader. Just really, really remarkable what is going on in the country right now. As we've seen in the past... Uh, these things can have a shorter life, and then there is a crackdown. I appreciate you're not the, in the country itself. It's difficult to say. Uh, any indication of how the regime is reacting so far? Well, you know, Graham, it's very difficult for us to verify what's going on on the mm-hmm. ground, especially that the government now is really trying to restrict the Internet uh, in many parts of the country. According to the Internet watchdog NetBlock, they've documented disruptions that we've not seen since the 2009 protests in the country. But we're still getting some eyewitness accounts. We're still getting those videos trickling out of the country. Um, and according to Amnesty International, UN experts, they're saying that the security uh, forces, the authorities in the country uh, have been using excessive force in dealing with these protests. Amnesty says that they've documented at least eight deaths and scores others who've been injured. They say that the security forces have opened a direct fire on the protesters they, uh, using bird shots and other metal pallets and shooting directly at uh, protesters. So look, I mean, talking to uh, a lot of Iranians outside the country, they're really watching this and hoping that this could be the beginning of something, a turning point in the country. But there's also a lot of concern, a lot of fear, as you mentioned, as we have seen in the past, that the government uh, will really use this excessive force as we have seen in the past. And we are seeing those tactics like blocking the internet, shutting down social media uh, networks. And, you know, we've heard from the powerful Revolutionary Guard Corps issuing a warning to protesters today. They're telling the, um, you know, authorities to identify people for, uh, responsible for spreading rumors in the mm. country, accusing the protesters of being rioters. I mean, very, very concerning um, you know, perhaps ominous signs of what is to come when we hear this, uh, these sort of statements from the authorities. So everybody's bracing for what might be coming tomorrow, Friday, traditional day of protests. After Friday prayers, uh, there's a lot of concern about counter-protests. Hmm. How pervasive are these morality police? Like, how, how controlled um, is life for average Iranians' uh, because I, I, I've heard uh, that, that it, it, for instance, Tehran is quite a cosmopolitan city, if you can, uh, in certain aspects. It's, 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 not a, um, it's, it's, it's not an authoritarian regime that is always in your face by only certain perspectives, though. Uh, can you paint us a picture for how pervasive it is? Well, so look, the morality police that's existed for a very long time, they're part of the security forces, they're tasked with enforcing the strict Islamic dress code in the country, including 
um, the headscarf or the hijab, they've got a lot of access to power, to weapons, to detention facilities. They've even introduced these so-called re-education centers. That's where we saw 22-year-old Masa Amini taken to. Mm. Uh, they basically drag women off the streets, take them to these re-education centers, where by all accounts, women are treated like criminals. Um, in there. So there's been a lot of concern, especially in recent months. We've heard this from the United Nations Human Rights Office saying that they have verified accounts and videos that have emerged of abuses and ill treatment by immorality police that many are really uh, worried and they say that from what we've been seeing happen on the ground that they've been really empowered by the current hardliner government Mm. and the authorities in the country. Um, I mean, the thing is, a lot of women, and and there's this debate going on in the country about whether the country should even have a compulsory um, headscarf rule. So we're seeing this debate taking place. And now we're even seeing these young people on the streets discussing whether the morality police should even exist right now. Mm. Um, So the death of Masa Amini has really sparked uh, a debate in the country that, of course, we're seeing spill into the streets as protests, uh, but also something that all um, different parts and segments of society, even the more religious and conservative ones, are discussing and wondering if these uh, forces have gone too far. And what happens... uh also, of course, in Iran, matters through the larger region. Obviously, um, it, it is a it is a very large economy in the region, and a very obviously a very powerful country. Of course, it's a very powerful country. With whatever happens in Iran, of course, it has a lot of influence on neighboring countries. Whether it is Syria or whether it is Iraq, where it has proxies, it has forces, it backs. Uh, on the ground. But, you know, as we've seen the U.S. sanctions recently really bite, and you're seeing this, um, you know, the attempts to try and revive the uh, 2015 nuclear deal really stall, not looking likely Mm. um, right now. A lot of people are looking at this and saying that the government is under a lot of pressure right now on so many different levels. I mean, the, the anger on this Streets, Graham. This is not just about the freedoms and the issues that people have with the morality police. There have been so many issues that have been building up the anger against the government that has been building up um, when it comes to the state of the economy. You're talking about uh, inflation, about 50, 60 percent mm. right now. People really Jum- struggling, especially after the pandemic. Jumana, thank you very much. I am out of time. I really appreciate your perspective. Thanks for coming on. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Evan's got the marching snare drums in there. Like, it's quite official. Like, and it might be a drum machine, but it's still, you know, kind of stirs the blood. It's that time of week again, though. Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. 
right after the snare drum. Scott Reed is here. How are you, Scott? I'm great. I agree with you. There's something off-putting about that music. I think that, um, like, it's it's kind of like Sith, you know? Yeah. Like there's a yeah. little, there's a menacing undertone. Like, I, I won't say, I wouldn't go as far as fascist or anything like that, but it's certainly authoritarian, and I'm sure he's uh, he's directing whoever's making that music to be that I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm with you. I see uh, shine boots. Look, uh, uh, I happen to drop in on that uh, other thing you do on the side uh, every week that I can, uh, your podcast uh, with David Hurley, which is uh, a great curse of politics and stuff like that, which we're not supposed to talk about, but whatever. Um, you, had a, <laughs> you had a really interesting take on uh, Polyev in the media and how he has to uh, clearly, well, d- just talk a bit about it, the balance he's trying to strike, which is obviously... Um, you know, not take any crud from the media, but at the same time, the nonpartisans out there are looking at him in a way they weren't before the leadership race. Yeah, you know, let's put it this way. So the premise comes at you these days and it says, you know what, all the lame stream mainstream media you don't need to worry about that anymore because the reality is that you can just communicate with your supporters um and with anyone for that matter directly through social media yada yada mm-hmm. and you know here we are on so-called legacy media talking about this and 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 the argument i made was there's a science and an art to this the science could be deceptive. Like you might look at the metrics and go, you know what? I can reach exactly who I want to, and I can target them with the messages that I prefer. And I don't need to speak to the press gallery in uh, on parliament Hill. I don't right. need to do Evan's show. I don't need to talk to Graham. I don't need to do any of that. But the art of it is that if you're openly antagonistic and hostile, and if people witness that, they don't, you know, they don't say to themselves, Oh, Oh, I see. He's he's just putting down the media and that's okay. We don't like the media. Instead, what they see is somebody who's in a position of authority and power. And that's what he is now that he's the leader of a party uh, kicking down. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the thing I always tell people when I'm doing media training, when I'm coaching them is in the absence of anything else, the audience will adopt the interviewer. They'll adopt the broadcaster. They'll drop the, the, they'll adopt the reporter as their surrogate. And if they see someone in a position of power beating up on that, well, then they'll interpret that as this person would therefore easily beat up on me. So I think for Polyev, he's got to be careful. He thinks that ah, it doesn't matter. I can kick the beeswax out of uh, David Aiken when he yells at me during a, uh, a speech. And a lot of the, but a lot does. of the country agrees with him. It doesn't look good. And, and David had to apologize. And so uh, Polyev wins, but, but there's more subtleties that uh, there, there are more subtle aspects of that when you're leader. People's impressions of leaders are not, um, they're not math, right? They're impressionistic. They're emotional. They are scraps of information and bits and slices of images. And when you feed people little bits of you looking hostile, being aggressive, um, putting other people down, there's a risk that the impression they'll withdraw is that you're unlikable and that you're a jerk. And I think for Polyev, maintaining this posture that he has, where he's very barbed wire, he's very aggressive, maintaining that without becoming unlikable is a real dance and a real balance for him. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to ask you as well, where does he, 
where does he have to grow? It seems to me, looking at the map, I mean, he's got to get into the suburbs. He's got to get into the cities in a, in a larger way than previous conservative leaders did. Similar to Harper, similar to Mike Harris, you know, especially in, obviously in Ontario. Um, does that need to be their concentration in the general? You know, uh, yes, to a degree. Suburbs are also are always critical. You've got to win the suburbs of Vancouver and you've got to win the suburbs uh, around Toronto if you really want to move um, sea totals. My own view is that's not really the way they look at the map. I think they look at the map differently. I think they think there is a cleavage that is more substantial than uh, urban, suburban, rural, mm-hmm. uh, men, women, uh, income, and that's a cultural cleavage. Mm-hmm. And they're they're ripping a page out of the book of American politics, like we all do in Canada, mm-hmm. in all parties. You know, that's the great political laboratory, the great political campaigning laboratory. I think they're looking at it and they're saying, culture is something that allows us to Venn diagram a bunch of those demographics. So when we say to people, you know what inflation tells you? Inflation tells you that you're getting it and that somebody else doesn't care about you. Somebody else is doing just fine and government isn't there for you. They're there for them. Mm -hmm. Well, then that appeals to a bunch of housewives in, you know, the GTA and suburban uh, Toronto who feel put upon, but it appeals to the mechanic in downtown Montreal who's slaving away at a job or feeling his pocketbook pinched. Like they, I think they believe those cultural issues um, give them a side door into a whole pile of demographics and voter and voter segments um, that defy the traditional, oh, we're going to focus on the 905 yeah. in Toronto. As an that example. makes sense because, because, and it's clear what he is doing and, and it's very difficult as a government to respond by saying, I, I we're going to control grocery prices because they can't. And so he can sit there and hammer and hammer and hammer about how much is everything costing and I'm going to fix it. And then of course, the government's not going to respond with, we'll fix it, we're going to do this. But you say that the government can do more and also can be seen to be doing more because so far they kind of they kind of don't really look like they're as engaged, certainly as the Conservative Party on this issue. Well, there's always, a, there's always this sort of almost philosophical, if not pure, purely strategic challenge for governments, incumbent governments, when a problem comes along, like a big problem that everybody feels and is undeniable, something like inflation, something like a, a weakening economy. Do you talk about it as a government to demonstrate to people that you get it, you recognize the challenge that they feel and that you're on top of it, or... Do you not talk about it because you don't want to reinforce the negative? You don't want to persuade people that the problem is just as big as they think, maybe even bigger. And I think so far the government has really subscribed to the latter uh, as a strategy. I think it's failing. I think they recognize that it's failing and they're going to have to pivot as governments often do when confronted with this choice. They try to manage around the hill and then they realize, nope, I got to climb the hill. Mm-hmm. And now they're going to start saying, yep, we get it. People are put upon. And they're starting to try to recognize and do things about it in a way that before they said they weren't. So 
you know, what song number one was, Hey, childcare is already taking care of that song. Number two, we saw a week ago, right? Oh, we're actually going to target it. We're going to do GST relief. That's going to help people. Song number three, they're going to do broad-based relief. It's going to come in about two, three months when we start moving toward a recession and people are really feeling hurt and grocery bills are still high. And, you know, by the time they get through that gauntlet of their own choosing, um, they better hope they still have some political life left in them. Yeah, because because he's just going to keep hammering. As, and why wouldn't you? Like, why wouldn't you? He's the, op- he's the opposition leader. Yeah. He has the luxury. The onus is not on him. The government might say, well, what's your answer? And he'll say, my answer is cut the carbon tax and it's this and that. And they'll I go, yeah, the government. these other consequences. Yeah. He'll say, yeah, whatever. He's just going to pound away and say, it's a problem. You aren't zeroed in on it. You don't seem to feel it. You don't seem to be doing anything about it. And, you know, that's, that's rich territory for uh, opposition parties. Very quickly before I go, how ugly do you think the campaign's going to be if it is Trudeau and it looks like it's going to be Trudeau? I think it is going to be Trudeau. I think it's going to be a really d- tough campaign because, I, I, you know, I think in Trudeau you have somebody who already, um, you know, draws uh, fans and foes alike. And in Polyev, you have someone who will do and say things we've not seen of a federal political leader, literally. Mm-hmm. We never saw anybody say the sorts of things that Pierre Polyev said about Jean Charest in their own le- leadership campaign. God, I come from the Chrétien Martin Wars. Wars? They were like a tea party. We never spoke about one another in the way they did. Scott Reed, always great to talk to you. Thanks for this. You bet. Take care. It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Um, we're going to talk just for the next few minutes about healthcare and about family doctors. And it's not the familiar story, I don't think, anyway. A few, but a week ago, someone I work with mentioned the fact that not only does he not have a family doctor, he can't get into a walk in clinic. Like, they've restricted their hours at walk-in clinics. You know, across the country, you wonder why emergency rooms are jammed. What is your experience with this if you don't have a family doctor and you rely on walk-in clinics? Text us at 71010. Call us at 1-855-633-1010. 1-855-633-1010 or text 71010. I must admit that I just always assume I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a family doctor. And whenever people talked about the fact that they did not have a family doctor, I assumed the clinics were a reasonably good option. It turns out because of the demands, whether it's the lack of family doctors, whether it's uh, more illness out there, or they're not staffed well enough, just like everybody else, the clinics, at least in the Ottawa area and around Eastern Ontario, I'm hearing, have been limiting who can walk in and when you can walk in. This person I know ended up lining up yesterday for hours and got in within about six hours, but other people were turned away. On CTV Ottawa social media, we've put out a call. Have you you seen this? Have you heard this? And we're getting dozens and dozens of responses. People's family doctors have retired and they... Can't find a new family doctor, but they are going to walk-in clinics, but it is not regular. Like it's a window of opportunity to get in there. 
And you think about anybody who is diabetic, somebody who has to renew prescriptions, you call telehealth, you know, in Ontario, the 1-800-DOCTOR line or nurse line to talk to a nurse about your condition. And oftentimes they say, uh, you've got to get seen. And so your only option is the emergency room in some cases when the clinics just aren't taking patients. It's incredibly frustrating because these are some of the assumptions that we have about the system in Canada. You might wait a long time. It might have a few flaws in it, but once you get seen, the care is excellent. But what if you can't get seen? In parts of our region and across Canada, wait times at emergency rooms a few weeks ago were north of 20 hours to get seen by a doctor. Like if you have a serious problem, that's just extraordinary. But on the less important side, not the less important, but the less acute side, I'm hearing more and more that people can't get in to emergency or to, uh, to walk-in clinics. Uh, again, my assumption had always been you could walk up, head in there, and even if you had a long wait, you'd get seen by people. You'd get seen by a doctor at some point. Text us at 71010. Also, you can give us a call um, on our call line as well about whether you're having difficulty finding a family doctor or finding care at walk-in clinics where you live. This healthcare system issue, I think, is obviously has been a long time coming. And often pollsters would tell us that it's at, it's at the top of the list in terms of what people care about pre-COVID, that they care about healthcare. I think what the pandemic did was it stressed the system to the point where if it was teetering various hospitals, various places, you would, it would get much, much worse very quickly. And I think it is, it has challenged our assumptions about care in this country, particularly in this province, but other provinces as well that are having similar problems. It has, it has challenged our assumptions about the system. And it's going to be a conversation that political leaders are going to have to have. And I'm not just talking about the simplistic, let's, um, you know, let's privatize and expand into privatization. I think it's more comp, I know it's more complex than that. When you have shortages of employees, like we're seeing, um, I think you've got to have a fundamental, uh, discussion about, about how we care for people. Caroline from Montreal texts in the walk-in near me is now appointment only. Doctors were burned out and are retiring. That's another text. Somebody texted in saying the Walmart has an excellent walk-in clinic. I appreciate that these things vary across the country um, because, it, you know, and, and you can have, you can have, it's kind of like an accordion. It can, it can constrict and expand based on the amount of staff you have, based on the amount of illness you have. Boy, in the summer there, in July into August, it was very sketchy for a lot of people in a lot of industries and our healthcare system bore the brunt of it, an exhausted workforce bore the brunt of it. 
St. Thomas, Ontario, this text just came in. One walk-in clinic, sign on the door with, with numbers and times to call. When you call, it's a constant busy signal. See, I'm hearing this more and more. The, the, the notion that you, if you don't have a family doctor, there are options other than emergency seems to be slipping away. Um, I cut the end of my finger off, a texter says. It was an hour wait to get triaged. I had paramedics waiting to offload, bandage what was left of my finger. And it sounds like an hour wait to get triaged in the hospital. Um, and this is going to be, I think, the, the problem too, the problem too is the system is so huge with various levels of governments involved. There isn't one point of accountability. You'll have a great family doctor and a great family team or whatever it is, and something will happen at another level, and then things change on the ground, and that's the worst case scenario you worry about, right? That you're that they're going to, if you're attached to one particular doctor who retires, all of their patients are out too. Um, waited five years for a doctor. Gave up, spent $1,000 for a checkup and blood work at a private clinic in Montreal. Given the all clear, best $1,000 I've spent. Yes to two-tier. There you go. I mean, two-tier is here in many ways. If you don't, if you have that option, what do you do if you don't have, if you don't have a $1,000 to spend, if you don't have that kind of disposable income? Obviously, it's already two-tier. My daughter's reached out because she's having medical issues, but no walk-in clinics available in Peterborough. Went to Peterborough PHRC. I would assume that's uh, Peterborough Hospital last night. It was over a 10-hour wait, a lineup outside the hospital. My doctor refused to add my two sons to her patient list. And I understand that because doctors' offices, I've called on friends... uh, for friends. And I, uh, my, my doctor's office, no, we're not taking anybody. And it's been months since we've taken people because we're full. We just don't have the capacity. Thank you for the topic. I'm not sure about the rest of the country, but here in Ontario, the FHO models, I think that's, uh, IE salaried model is contribute partly towards the situation we're in fee for service appears to be better patient care model. I want to stay anonymous. Okay, I think they're talking about the flat rate for doctors. When it was fee-for-service, more people would get seen. There would be more appointments because they could, the compensation was set up better. Before we go, a couple of more texts. I'm personally very thankful to have a primary care doctor. However, there was a walk-in clinic in Burlington that has a sign that says, if this is a mental health-related issue, please go to your family doctor, as the clinic doctor does not have time to handle these situations. Could you imagine what someone in a mental health crisis would feel reading that? Some patient advocates in the area flagged the issue. It's not going away, folks. Thanks for your texts. Keep them coming. I'm Graham Richardson. This is The Evan Solomon Show.
This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. All right. For Amazing Race fans who have not watched their recorded versions yet, we have Spoiler a alert. I'm just saying, hold on, Jay, cover your ears. Spoiler alert. I got to say your mic. Spoiler alert. So, Chris, behind the board here in Ottawa is one of them. You can't listen anymore. You, you have to... Uh, you have to walk away from the board. Actually, you don't really have that option. We are going to talk to the winners of the Amazing Race Canada. Here is some of the final broadcast. Oh my God, did we do this? We did it. Did we? We did it. That's amazing. That is Craig Ramsey and Catherine Reeford Ledlow crossing the finish line on Tuesday's uh, season eight's finale. They are on the line uh, right now. When you hear that, I'll start with you, Catherine. What do you think? It must just send chills up your spine. I am still kind of in disbelief that it actually happened. I, uh, it was uh, not really real to me at that moment. I still felt like I was in a bit of shock. Part of your story, too, is, of course, you're suffering from from, from cancer, and that's part yeah. of your story. And um, did that uh, did that play a role for you? I know a lot of Canadians watching were really rooting for you, partially because of that, but also because they liked you, too. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> both. I um. Yeah, thank you. I uh, it did p- play a big part of it. I mean, one of our goals was to see the Canada together, and and we did that. We mm-hmm. got to have the longevity of making it to the final, and then we won the final. So it was amazing. Craig, what was the best part for you? Winning. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Captain, obvious That's question. Colorado. I mean, I kept as soon as John said. Uh, you're the winners, the title holders of Amazing Race Canada. Uh, it was hard to to focus on anything else but that amazing, beautiful blue Silverado to my left. Yeah. <laughs> For people, fans of the show, and maybe both of you can comment on this. Um, I, years and years ago, I knew someone who was a cameraman on the on the show. Um, just talk about what what it's actually like to to do this. It it, it it looks grueling, um, I, and we know there's some editing involved, but it, you're living every moment of this thing. Um, what, what's the hardest part for you in the midst of it all? Well, I mean, for us, it's it's the racing, but you talked about the cameramen. They have a way harder job. They have to carry around huge bags with cameras, and, and like I was like, can they keep up with us? They trained, I guess, for a long time to be able to keep up with us. Yeah, I can imagine because, and obviously the, you, you know, with time is the essence, you've got to move as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's right. Yep. I mean, it, the, these teams were so strong. They were so competitive that there was literally seconds between us. What about the fact that you get to see, do you get to enjoy parts of the country? Because in television, it's, it's just incredible the places you're going but I would imagine you are so focused. It's not like tourism, right? No, it's not like tourism, but you get to see some parts of it. But with the money that we've earned and what we have done, we want to go back with our families and visit the places that we've been already. And so that we can like look up, look out and enjoy where we are. What about you, Craig? 
I think it's it's such a tease to be <laughs> introduced to all of these amazing places we haven't been to in Canada. Um, but just enough tease for us and the viewers to really fall in love with it and want to invest back in, in as Catherine said, revisiting these locations. Um, but definitely not in race mode. No, no race mode. Take your time. Put your feet up. Uh, just like so many other people, uh, a lot of contestants, including yourselves, affected by COVID during this season. What what did that do and what was that like? Devastating. Devastating for us and also devastating for the other racers. As uh, uh, avid fans of the season's Amazing Race Canada know, we had a really strong OG alliance, if you will, um, with Team Fernella and Corton and Allie. And for um, Team Fernella to lose two of their, the, the, all of their alliance teams, um, it was devastating for them to move forward. And they had to make choices and make new connections with people that uh, I, I can't imagine what it was like for them when we eventually came back in leg um, six. But uh, to our surprise, we did come back. We didn't know for sure. And we had to be okay with that. Bravo to the producers and thank you to all the fellow racers who really supported that opportunity for us to come back because we were not eliminated. Mm. Um, it's physically draining. I, I know you're both dancers. Did that help? Like you, you must be exhausted after a, uh, after a competition like this. Oh yeah, we were totally exhausted, but you know, uh, you know, the show must go on eight shows a week, dancing and singing. You just, you do what you need to do. You feed your body when you don't need to be fed. You, you push yourself really, really, really hard. And yes, we were fried at the end of this. <laughs> Well, listen, thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations, Catherine from Winnipeg, Craig from Windsor. Uh, so many fans out there. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Congratulations. Well, thanks so much, join Graham. Us, join us on Monday at a, a live watch party at Brown Social House at 6.30 p.m. Where is that again? Brown Social House in Winnipeg. Wonderful. At 6.30 p.m. Yep. Center of Canada, as you know. That's right. And Craig and I will be there. <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much. That Thank is, uh, that is the, the winning team. Amazing race Canada, uh, joining us just, uh, just now, you know, um, boy, we really, uh, the last segment I asked about doctors and asked about clinics and we are getting a lot of response here. Um, locally here in Ottawa, where I am, we're getting it around the country. It seems to be a, ve- it's, it's a patchwork of course. Um, clinic in Eganville, which is up in the Ottawa Valley here, will only see people whose doctors are involved in the clinic. They will not just take anyone. That's Ernie. Um, I was a part of a great family health team, but when my doctor closed her practice, none of the other doctors would take her patients. And my daughter and I have been out of luck since. I have to admit, being without a doctor causes me anxiety. Cheryl. Um, I also, we also received a text in the town of Picton. And apparently, and we we have to check this, but retirements are huge. Four of five doctors, this is the text here from someone in Streetsville in the Mississauga area. The town of Picton has five doctors. Four are retiring within the next two years. That's, uh, and we've, for years, we've heard smaller towns outside of cities have to go to great lengths to attract doctors to family practices sometimes paying uh, students' debts off, offering cash bonuses, doing whatever they can. Uh, some have gotten very creative. Um, you know, places like, uh, you know, mountain towns and resort towns have 
um, an advantage over smaller places that don't have as much cachet, maybe. Um, the problem now, of course, is cities are facing this shortage too. So now uh, any doctors graduating who want to live in a big city, um, they're going to get incentives to go there too. It seems to be not just a rural issue. I think it's a, um, it's a cross the country rural urban issue uh, in terms of in terms of doctors and clinics. Um, this one again from Ottawa. There are two walk-in clinics west of the canal downtown, one on Preston, one on Albert. It's very close to the downtown core, those two addresses for people who don't know Ottawa. They've been closed since March of 2020. Preston has limited customers, one doctor, and a lineup. That has been the case for months. Charles from Centertown in Ottawa. We're going to continue to follow this story um, over the next few days on radio, on television, on the Bell Media Network and the iHeartRadio Network um, about trying to get clinics to see people who don't have family doctors. Could this be why we are... I, I appreciate the system is all connected, but could this be why we're seeing emergency rooms with 20-hour, 15-hour, 10-hour waits? Because it is the only option for people. They can't simply go into a walk-in clinic and avoid going to the hospital. The hospital's the only place they can go. I'm Graham Richardson. We're back in just a moment. Stay with us. Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson coming up to the top of the hour. I hope you're having a good afternoon. Always like talking to Dan Riskin, our CTV science and technology specialist. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. Hey, Dan, how are you? Don't you love that song? Isn't that just an exciting way to go into the segment? I love it every time. I'm like smiling <laughs> ear to ear over here. You get your own stinger. It's a great yeah, story. Yeah, man. Yeah. Right on. I got my own sting. The Riskin yeah. sting. I made it in my cell phone ring. No, I haven't done that yet, but I uh, should. Let's put the audio file. Um self-driving cars and this part of technology uh, is, is, is moving fairly quickly. Um, it seems generally speaking that, that we're, we're getting there. We will get there perhaps sooner than people think. And it depends mm -hmm. on what it, what it, what it's going to look like. Obviously the safety is uh, the biggest question. There's an mm -hmm. interesting uh, study that's been done in Japan about physically doing something to the car when it's self-driving. Yeah. You know what? I, it used to be like, I don't know, certainly in the 90s uh, when I was in university that Japan had just had all these wacky ideas and you don't be, oh, in Japan they do this. Oh, in Japan they have these crazy vending machines. And it feels like the rest of the world just kind of shifted and became as loopy as Japan once was. But I think Japan's taking the title back because their idea here, uh, and this is uh, a press release uh, out of the University of Tokyo, uh, is to put giant googly eyes on the front of a self-driving car so that the car can look at you <laughs> as it drives past you. So you're a pedestrian and you're thinking about crossing and the car is coming 
<clears throat> excuse me and then as the car approaches these giant googly eyes make eye contact with you on the front of the car now remember there's no driver right this is a self-driving vehicle so there's no driver to make eye contact with like you would when you're about to cross and the idea is that these eyes will look you in the eye and that will give you whatever you communicate with the driver when they look you in the eyes you know when you make eye contact with a, a car driver that's coming yes. you kind of know they're not going to hit you because they yes. see you so that's the idea with this is when you make eye contact with the car, maybe it, it's not going to hit you. And if it doesn't make eye contact with you, maybe that's a clue that you shouldn't cross. Where are the eyes? Are they like in the headlights or somewhere yeah. else? Well, so th for the test of this idea, they put them where the headlights are supposed to be. So presumably, uh, I mean, I guess I, do self-driving cars need headlights? I guess <laughs> they probably do. Yeah. I mean, they use LIDAR and all this other stuff, but also we need to see them coming. So they should have lights for that reason. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, the, the pictures are hilarious. They basically got this, it looks like a golf cart and it's a self-driving driving vehicle that really works as a self-driving vehicle but they put these eyes on it and it looks i mean a car already kind of looks like a face because of the headlights but now it's like these look like a muppet's eyes right and they move back and forth the robotic and so what they, they had to figure out whether this is actually going to work right they, the mm -hmm. question is could this technology actually reduce fatalities from people getting you know, pedestrians getting hit by a self-driving car so what they did is they put a 360 degree virtual reality camera on a tripod at the place where a pedestrian would be standing, getting ready to cross the street. And then they drove the self-driving car down the street past it. And in some of the trials, there were no googly eyes. It was just a normal self-driving car. And sometimes it stopped and sometimes it kept going. And in other trials, it had googly eyes where it would make eye contact with you and then stop, or it would not make eye contact with you and it would keep going. And then they had these four videos, these four different like scenarios, and then people in an experiment put on virtual reality goggles so they could in virtual reality stand on the side of the road where this thing is going to go by and then decide whether to cross or not without actually being in danger of being hit by the vehicle. Wow. So yeah, I was going to say it's kind of difficult to test this right without yeah. hurting people. Yeah, exactly. And so they had to do a lot of lot of legwork to make it all happen, but they did it. And so now they've got these videos of a self-driving car with googly eyes coming down the street. And what's interesting is that oh, the overall error rate went down, which mm. is good. It makes you think the googly eyes are the way to go. But unfortunately, what did not go down is the number of times that somebody stepped out in front of a vehicle that was not slowing down to stop for them. And so they would have been mm. hit in real life. Hmm. And so uh, if you have no eyes or if you have eyes, that happens about the same amount of the time. It's about 30% in this particular trial, which just reminds you why it's a good idea to do it in virtual reality instead of with real people. Right. Um, or instead of with real cars and real people. Yeah. Um, but what did change is there's a scenario where both of them stop, like the person doesn't cross and the car stops. And you've kind of wasted a couple seconds there. I mean, it's safe, but it was an error in the sense that there was a miscommunication about who, who was going to go. And both of them ended up stopping. And that happened less frequently thanks to the eyeballs. So the eyeballs might not reduce deaths or people getting hit by vehicles which is kind of what it was for, but it might make things more efficient. And also it would put giant googly eyes on everybody's Tesla and all their other cars. And so I think it's worth doing just for the comedic factor. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't make things worse, which is is one good thing, but yeah. uh, it didn't have the desired effect despite the wacky uh, creative idea and all the work that they put into trying to make this happen, you know, in an experiment. It's illegal, but some of these new cars like Tesla, they, they convert, they can almost, they can drive themselves right now, right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, they have self-driving modes and a lot of people are pretty worked up about what that means. I mean, there are a lot of really big questions. Like if somebody does get hit by one of these vehicles and it's in self-driving mode, whose fault is it? Is it the person that bought the car, that programmed the car, that uh, is sitting in the car or nobody's fault? It's just a machine, you know, it's just a tragic accident. What what do you do with it? Um, and, you know, it doesn't take much for, a, you know, a very small error rate with the number of cars that are out there and the number of different scenarios. It can be pretty daunting. But the other thing is that people make tons of dumb mistakes all the time. When all the time. All the time. Yeah. And somehow we've come to accept that and be like, well, you know, that's just the way it is with cars because we're used to it. Mm -hmm. But that's a well-known cognitive bias. It's called the status quo bias. It's, you know, we're we're used to this kind of thing. So we're, we accept the fact that people who, you know, probably shouldn't be driving a vehicle because the test to drive is so darn easy, uh, you know, are out there on the roads. And well, you know what, they have to get places and we have to, as a society, people have to have freedoms and all that stuff. We're, we're very worried about these autonomous vehicles, but we accept other kinds of risk that are arguably probably bigger. So I remember, I think it, yeah, early, early days of testing and somewhere, I think it was California, there was a death or something happened mm -hmm. and they came out and they said, we're going to have more deaths. And there are thousands of deaths on the road now that are caused by people driving cars with no automation. And it, it is right. a different way to look at it. Like we're pouncing on this that one incident of a testing death and it's like, you see, it's not safe. And of course, then we all jump in our cars and go 135 on the highway or, yep. you know, do a slow rolling stop through a school zone or something like yep. that. And it's much more dangerous. Absolutely. And and so it's interesting. So I'm really interested in the status quo bias. And in fact, there was an experiment that just came out recently where they, they showed participants a new technology. And it's a technology, actually, it's not even a new technology. It's just a technology that people would not have familiarity with unless they worked in that specialized field. And they told people experimentally that the technology was from either 10 years before their, the day they were born or from 10 years after the year they were born. And so, so they asked the participant, what year were you born beforehand? And then they manipulated it for the experiment. And people who believe that that existed before they were born, they like the technology. And when the when they're told that it was invented after they were born, they like it a lot less. Mm -hmm. We have this built-in bias that we don't trust things you know, drones, self-driving cars, uh, you know, whatever technology it is, even smartphones, kids with smartphones, all these different things. We have this built-in bias that we're scared of those things when, you know, or when in fact it might not be worse than the status might be quo, better. but we yeah. trust the status quo. All right, Dan, thanks so much for this. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That is Dan Riskin, CTV Science and Technology Specialist. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks so much for being here on the Evan Solomon Show. Um, we are just a few minutes away from Pierre versus Justin. We will have coverage across the networks on the first question period with Pierre Polyev as leader of the Conservative Party asking Justin Trudeau more questions.